0: The term AI is so misleading. People come up with various other terms. I think this one person, I believe it was like a former Italian parliamentarian or something like that, came up with this abbreviation that ends up being salami <laughs> that's the abbreviation <laughs> and then it becomes super clear like when you're saying can the salami replace hummus that's not stupid right like you know what I, so you know i think that it's it's good to to use those kinds of terms rather than ai which becomes kind of like a very misleading term
1: Hey, it's Rafi Krikorian and this is Technically Optimistic. As you probably know by now, the first season of our show was all about AI. We spent a lot of time talking about how big a deal this technology is and talking with all sorts of people about what changes, good and bad, we can expect in the future. But we also tried to understand what exactly AI is as best we could. And in episode 5, we referenced a kind of analogy from a recent research paper. According to the authors, the best way to understand what a large language model actually does is to think of it as a stochastic parrot. That's a term the paper's authors coined. Now, this is kind of a lot, but it means something that, quote, haphazardly stitches together sequences of linguistic forms according to probabilistic information about how they combine, but without any reference to meaning. What that means is that LLMs aren't really thinking. They're imitating. Like an actual parrot, they might convincingly say things, but not because they know what they're saying. And even though AI is often talked about as a mysterious force that's on par with human intelligence, this kind of pulls the rug out from under that whole idea. My guest today is Timnit Gebru, who wrote that Stochastic Parrot paper along with Emily M. Bender and other co-authors. In 2020, Gabru very publicly departed from Google's ethical AI lab. She says she was fired. Google said she resigned. It's a whole thing. But in 2021, she went on to launch her own organization, the Distributed AI Research Network, or DARE. And that organization is doing similar rug-pulling work, examining what AI really is, what big tech companies disclose about it, and who gets to be in control of its development. In my opinion, Timnit's voice is an absolutely vital one in the societal conversation we're all having about AI. I had actually wanted to sit down and talk with her months ago, but our schedules didn't match up. But last month, we had a fantastic and broad conversation about a lot of different topics, and I'm so thrilled to be sharing it with you all here. By the way, we are knee deep into working on season two of Technically Optimistic, and we're so excited about it. We'll have lots more to tell you very soon. Visit us on the web at emersoncollective.com slash technicallyoptimistic. That's a newer and shorter URL, by the way. emersoncollective.com slash technicallyoptimistic. And follow us on social media at Emerson Collective. Here's my conversation with Timnit Gebru. Maybe a good place to start, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about how you came about doing this work in general. Can you just give me the sense of, like, the arc?
0: Right. Um, I can, you know, I'm going to try to be brief because that arc is really long and, like, just, (laughs) like, has lots of (laughs) ins and outs. Twists and turns. Um, Twists and turns, yeah. So, basically, I was very interested in math and physics growing up, and my dad was an electrical engineer. So, when I went to school... I you know, decided to major in electrical engineering, and electrical engineering is a very broad field. Like, it, you can do so many different things under that umbrella. So you can do things that are closer to pure math. You can do things that are closer to pure physics. You can do things that are more software engineering. You could do algorithms. Like, it's, it's a very broad field, which also means that, like, if you're someone like me, you can wander from one end of that extreme <laughs> to the other. So um, when I first started in EE, I kind of started working on what's called circuit design. Mm -hmm. I I also, you know, was interested in music. So I started working in audio circuitry. So that's how I, that's kind of what I got my degree in. And then I worked at Apple doing that. So during that time, I was also got super interested in in kind of like processing the data. In addition to just making the circuitry. It's like a combination of a number of things. Mm -hmm. Then I went back to do my master's and I got more into the devi- what's called device physics, which is building um, devices, like making better CPUs, making smaller, you know, memory or whatever, and that kind of stuff. And that gets much more into physics. And then at some point, I started doing this project which was more about trying to create like imaging devices. And I started like getting interested in how you process the images. Mm -hmm. And so I started like sort of, that's how I veered off into that direction. (laughs) I started this work in 2013, and the idea was that a lot of people were doing, you know, data mining using textual data, text data, and like, could we do a similar thing using images? Mm. So we got all these images from Google's Street View. We identified all the different cars, and you know, there was like, what could we learn from this data? And so that took, I learned a lot from that project, but it took so many years and I I was just, by the time I was done with it, I was so tired of it.
1: You were so done. (laughs) Yeah, I
0: was very much done. I didn't want to look at the code or anything. But during that process, I learned that when you're trying to do this kind of work, it's the data that's really important. And that's what takes forever to do. And that's really determines the quality of the work. But it's also the most undervalued kind of work in the field as a whole. Mm. Whether it's academic or industry. And it's kind of hidden. People talk about AI as if it's like its own thing. But like there's all of this data work that's done by humans. That was one um, lesson that I had. The second one is that you you have to be very careful about what you can and cannot say with the data that you have. So one of the things that I, I remember in the earlier papers that we mentioned was how we can infer, you know, crime rates with our data. And it's like, when I look at that now, I cringe so hard because, you know, it's it's all of this information about who was arrested versus who wasn't, right? You're not having information about who committed a crime, for instance. Yeah. It was like I got too excited about like, okay, what can we tell? What can we say with this data? And so this was a good lesson for me, you know, in, in kind of my later works.
1: I mean— Can we explore that for a second? Like, what you just described, is that fundamentally one of the issues today of just like, it's people tinkering as opposed to people thinking?
0: Yeah, I think one of the biggest issues in AI in the field as a whole, there's this excitement about what you can do with data and not much thinking about what that data represents, what that data means, at least in the social sciences or even in statistics, people think about the data generation process very much, right? So like, what does this data represent? What do I think I'm measuring versus what am I measuring? Mm -hmm. What do I think I'm inferring versus what can I infer? Whereas in this um, field, and especially more recently with the advent of what people call deep learning, people started getting more and more excited about what they call end-to-end everything. End-to-end means that you have data, and you have a model, and you have some sort of output. And you try to remove as much human input, as much human like knowledge injection as possible into that system. This means that you kind of make assumptions about what your data is. And, you know, many times wrong assumptions. And you don't mm-hmm. even think about what this data is and what does it represent, what does it not represent.
1: You said somewhere that like AI means different things to different people. Can you unpack that statement for me?
0: Uh, I don't even know what AI means, honestly, (laughs) at this point. You know, I, I got my PhD in a field called computer vision, which is a subset of the field of AI. So I was in a lab called the AI lab, but I never said that I was working in AI. We all just said computer vision. And then other people in other fields like Natural language processing, would say they're in natural language processing. I think right now, AI is much more of a marketing term. You know, we cycled through these, right? Big data, blah, 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 you know? And so now it's AI. So everybody's like rebranding as AI, whatever, you know, maybe if it wasn't, they didn't call themselves as AI before. But it's a very confusing term because I think that some people... When they think of AI, maybe they think of this kind of machine, robot, like Terminator kind of thing. Um, and other people like me, when I think of AI, I'm thinking of the field of AI as a whole, and I don't—I have no desire to create a machine, robot. Terminator or whatever thing. I'm thinking more about tools. I, I, I'm thinking about a toolkit that we have. That's how I'm viewing AI as. Then there is this thing called AGI, artificial general intelligence, which is even, I don't even know where, where to start there, which is like the most ridiculous thing ever, as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, it sounds like this kind of all-knowing God-like being that you want to create and there's a set of people whose goal is to create that that thing and quote-unquote make it beneficial. So actually OpenAI's mission is to create AGI, which is different from AI, which is artificial general intelligence that quote-unquote benefits all of humanity. And as far as I'm concerned, if your goal is to create that, you cannot be beneficial. Hmm. I would say one of the major concepts in engineering is creating a well-scoped, well-defined system. You're asking, what do I create? What is the goal of the system that I create? What is supposed to achieve, and for whom? Right? And if you're trying to create like a quote, a, a, a god, what does that even <laughs> mean? Right? And so, how do you test out whether what it's supposed to do, whether it works or not, w- under which scenario? Even even if you just look at like transportation, right? You don't see that you're going to try to create a thing that moves all things. Across all distances <laughs> for everybody, it's like even if it's across roads, you have buses, you have trucks, you have small cars, you have, like, you know what I mean. And so it's like, how how do you how do you attempt to create this thing that is supposed to do everything for everyone?
1: I mean, in in some ways, like we're basically doing a disservice to everyone because like. We've been using this type of technology for a while. Like, it's been in Uber. It's been in my Twitter feed. The way it's been through a cast is just causing confusion with everyday people and, like, how they should, like, establish their relationship, not just with AI, but, like, technology writ large.
0: Yeah, um, you're right. I mean, we are doing a disservice to people because we are not being specific and we're lumping everything into AI. And one of the things that does is... It both kind of obfuscates exactly what's going on, but also it makes it such that it, it, it's like a marketing term that's right. Companies can make it look like they're having something much more powerful than than they do. so so i don't I don't think it's a good thing
1: We've been exploring lots of questions around power and humanity. One of my theses is that like power has shifted. Like it used to be kings and it went to money. Now it's like people deploying technology in the world. And then question about humanity is like a question of just like, we are allowing people to be exploited or allowing inequities be forced upon us. So it opens up questions of like, what does it mean to our humanity that we are willing to do this to each other in order to get progress? Yeah. But maybe the overarching question is like, I want to ask about responsibility. Where does responsibility lie in these issues that you've been highlighting or talking about or AI in general? Like... Is it with the creators of the technology? Is it for the government for not regulating it? Is it with users who are using the technology? Like, where where should we ascribe responsibility?
0: So I think first I would start with the notion of progress. I think our notion of progress needs to take into account, you know, human welfare.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: What does progress mean? Why are we assuming that any kind of new tech is progress. To me, the advent of these large models, the way that we are using them right now with the environmental catastrophe, each time you use it, you know, amount of water it takes and centralization of power, I don't see that as progress there's this kind of notion that there's some sort of technological inevitability and we just kind of need to figure out how to adapt to it. You know, the tech is just happening on its own. I was reading this book by Paris Marx called The Road to Nowhere and it was about like the history of transportation and the tech industry and things like that. And, and, And in this book, he was talking about how like a hundred years ago, they were already talking about self-driving cars but with different techniques and they were some of the um, suggestions for how humans, how how humans could be legible to the cars were about how we have to adjust the way we dress and things like that. It's like we have to adjust ourselves to that technology rather than the other way
1: around. Yeah.
0: So I think that's, that's kind of, you know, I think the overarching narrative that we have to think about. In terms of responsibility, I think that, This question is simplified when we think about AI as just another technology, right? When people talk about it as if it's like its own thing, you know, sentient, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's quite convenient for the groups of people who don't want to take responsibility because you start ascribing agency to an artifact that someone creates. Um, There's people who ask questions like, oh, can machines be ethical? Can we create more machines? No. Because it's, it's humans who are creating things and it's humans who are deciding how to use them. So to me, the responsibility lies with everybody that you mentioned. Governments need to regulate because what we're trying to do is we were trying to have checks and balances with different you know groups of people. If government and a company are one and the same, we don't have a check and balance. We have a certain form of dictatorship basically, right? Yeah. And so I think that the reason we have elected officials is so that they can regulate based on something other than the profit motive. And so somehow we've created the system where companies only have to chase the profit motive and anything other than that has to come from outside of that market, right? And that's hard because how can we compete with the lobbying that these companies have? Mm -hmm. The thing that's happening though is in, in terms of the users, I think that a lot of regulation, even the ones that exist, puts too much of the onus on users. So, for example, I'm, I'm getting so many emails these days of these poor students who are wrongfully accused of using ChatGPT in their homework. Teachers are using, like, these detection tools, which don't work. Yeah. And now the students, the only thing they can do is they can, like, try to complain, take it up with their… But why are they even put in this situation in the first place, right? The onus should not be on the student… So this is what I mean. And, and so a lot of regulation that exists, like even the general data protection regulation in, in the EU, I think many times puts the onus on, on, on individuals who have no power and, and they shouldn't be the ones spending time and energy and resources to prove that they have you know experienced some harm.
1: I just want to zoom out for a second. Um, the government's role could be to add different incentives that are not the financial ones. Because like we live in a capitalistic society. Financial incentives are just natural for us anyway. Natural, unnatural. We can talk about that later. But the government could be injecting other incentive mechanisms into the system. I think that's actually such a great way to phrase that, that idea. But you've written a bunch about data exploitation effectively, or sort of people being used in order to train these systems, train these models. That's sort of like related to my question around humanity of just like, what are we willing to do to others effectively in order to have progress to your point? So, I mean, basically, have we allowed the tech industry just to go on too far in order to make these practices happen? How should we find that right balance or is that right balance not even possible?
0: I think that, again, it goes back to the notion of progress. What do we consider to be progress? Um, Do we consider progress to be uh, creating more and more exploitative technologies? I don't think so. If we determine that that is not something we should do, then I don't think that's something we should do. And I think it's easiest to kind of pretend that it's not happening when it's not made visible. All of the things we've been talking about, like the term AI, like the devaluing of data work, it serves to kind of not make visible all of the different components that are involved in the system, right? For each time you prompt chat GPT to do something, if you can see... How much water it takes, what the data centers actually look like, you know, what is happening at the places where these data centers are, how many people were traumatized so that you don't get to see the toxic outputs like the content moderators for social media platforms that we discussed. I mean, if you every single time you use these things, you are confronted with that. I don't know if you would want to use use that. I don't know because a lot of times I think in humanity, uh, you know, and throughout history, in many ways, even when we know we don't want to see things because it makes us too uncomfortable when we see things, and because we don't want to go along with stuff, many times when we actually see what's happening. So um, I I don't believe that it's just a natural order of things and that we should just continue with this. What I think actually is that if. These companies were not allowed to exploit labor, I wonder how quickly they'd want to proliferate these kinds of systems. Mm. Because the goal, the the holy grail, is to automate as many things away and make as much money, right? And so, you know, the promise is that this technology will do a lot of stuff that humans were able to do. And so, therefore, you can just use this technology, make lots of money, and not hire anybody. However— if you have to hire lots of people and pay them lots of money, if you had to pay for all the data that you're acquiring, then that means that your calculation all of a sudden becomes, uh, okay, like, this doesn't make sense anymore because I have to spend a lot of money paying for all these things. So I think that you would naturally probably slow down if it's clear that you're not going to be making money from this because you're going to have to compensate everybody appropriately. So I think the, the, one of the biggest reasons in which we're in this race is because they're able to do this without compensating anybody appropriately.
1: You know, I've spoken to writers and producers on the on the Hollywood strike, and their complaint is basically it's similar to what you're talking about. It's just like our work is being appropriated to train these models that are going to put us out of business. On the other hand, you know, I used to run a self-driving car team, and we used to have laborers, uh, labelers, in India that would label all our data that came off the cars to put bounding boxes around it, label traffic lights, label people, we used to pay them, you know, we're exploiting market rates because label, laborers in India are cheaper than the United States. Is it purely a compensation question then, or is there is there more to it?
0: Um. I would say consent and compensation. I'm not sure if it's purely a compensation issue because many times, um, and I, I don't know how it was when you were doing this um, self-driving car stuff, but many times, you know, um, people in these kinds of positions are, they don't know what they're working on. So mm. that there's many things that are stacked against them. Fair. One of the people we have in our institute is an Amazon Mechanical Turker, right? And she was talking about, she would like look at, um, these images, satellite images of what they look like border crossings, and she would have to, you know, tag people. She doesn't know what's going to happen to these people. Yeah, She doesn't know what she's working on, so she can't push back. Everybody's super isolated, and they're in precarious conditions, so they can't strike like the writers are doing. They can't do organized labor. So I think it's not just an issue of compensation, even though compensation is a big one. I think it's also an issue of precarity and making sure that you choose vulnerable people who don't have other options, right? And so they can't push back.
1: Big picture. Tell me a little bit about what you and your colleagues are trying to do at DARE.
0: I would say the big picture for D.A.R.E. is that we want to serve like an early warning system of some of the harms that we see with respect to AI. So because we are a research institute and I think that in research you get to see the practices that are about to take place in the industry before they happen. So I think we want to serve as an early warning system, but we also don't want to just like get stuck cleaning up after everybody. And we want to yeah. also, you know, not just like yell about the issues, but put forward our vision for how we should build technology or AI specifically, because that's our expertise in times where it should be built. So we we're not you know, we don't believe that any technology needs to exist. Um, So it's like, you know, we're not tied to it. And so, but it's like, if we are able to build tools based on our expertise, what are our thoughts for how we should do them? So that's, that's, you know, the big picture of DARE. And the Institute right now is distributed across North America, Europe, and Africa. And we are interdisciplinary, not just across disciplines, like computer science and, you know, sociology, et cetera. But also, you know, we have labor organizers and refugee advocates and, you know, data workers. Cool. Because we want whatever we're doing to be influenced by all of those perspectives.
1: I'm assuming part of the reason you're doing this is to be outside of the big tech bubble. And so, like, how hard or easy is it to be outside that bubble, that, like, that gravitational force?
0: So, you know, when you're in big tech, let's say when I was at Google, We were running a small research team called the Ethical AI Team, and um, we also would talk to other people in the company who want to ask us questions about, you know, some of the products they were working on or some of the data practices they had or, you know, whatever, right? Right now, I don't have that. But we also have, like, for instance, um, the other day, I mean, a a few months ago, a number of artists kind of emailed us and asked us for help (laughs) given what's going on with generative AI and artists and you mentioned the strike Um, and you know um, I said you know what I think would be super helpful I think it would be helpful to write a paper for the academic community summarizing all of the issues that artists are facing with respect to these generative AI systems I'm like I don't have time to do it But I'm happy to help, you know, blah, blah, blah. I ended up doing it with them, but and I learned a lot. In the process, I collaborated with a lot of artists, philosophers, and um, legal scholars, all sorts of people. So that's what we can do at DARE that we can't do at Big Tech. right? At Google, you know, we are a resource for people like that rather than people at, you know, other parts of a Big Tech company. What we want to work on is different because of that, right? So if you are at a large tech company, you are probably, you know, taking advantage of the myriads of data that you have. Of course, you got it all without consent or the huge compute that you have, etc. And we're interested in the complete opposite. Right. Um, How can we work on stuff with small curated data sets, small curated, small models, you know, that's kind of the kind of stuff we're looking at. Right. And also, how can we, um, like I said, use our expertise to serve marginalized groups? So to look at spatial apartheid in South Africa. Um, In South Africa, of course, apartheid supposedly ended, right, legally. But the question is, you know, what are the lingering effects? Has it really ended in practice? And so when you look at these aerial images, you can really tell very easily where the townships are, even though those were mandated in like 1954, where, you know, Black people had to move into these townships. And so those were very dense and not well resourced. Whereas, right, when you see the census data right now, you can't tell where those townships were. Like, they're lumped into other kind of neighborhoods. So we can't ask the question of what the people's quality of life is in those places versus elsewhere. So the question is, you know, can we use computer vision techniques like our knowledge with other data analyses to ask this question? And then, of course, people can corroborate whatever they know to be true through their lived experiences, right? And hopefully that could help drive change. For instance, maybe you shouldn't just lump these neighborhoods together in the census data. And so these kinds of works come out, honestly, out of the experiences of the people we have, like, you know, Jo grew up in a township. It does not make sense to, and that's part of our research philosophy, to, like, parachute into a community that you don't know and try to do this kind of work.
1: You know, when I first heard about D.A.R.E., I had actually thought the D. stood for diverse.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: But in fact, it stands for distributed. So can you tell me what you're trying to signal there? Is there actually a connection between being distributed and being diverse?
0: So the the, the first word that came to my mind was distributed when I was thinking about D.A.R.E. because, you know, we want to do the opposite of Silicon Valley, which is centralized, right? And um, what you want to do is you want to distribute power in many different communities around the world. And so... You know, if somebody is in some city, I don't want to contribute to a brain drain. I'd want them to contribute to whatever community that they're in and help shape the future of technology from wherever they are. So even when you think about it technically, in terms of the direction that AI is going in right now with these huge centralized, one size fits all, one model that does any task kind of thing that people want to do. I want to do the complete opposite. I want many people around the world working on many different models that perform different tasks that are appropriate for their use cases.
1: I mean, we've, you've talked about a bunch of different institutions when it comes to checks and balances. Like I asked you about government, we talked about commercial sector, we talked about users for a while, although to your point, I don't think it's fair to ascribe responsibility to users. They're just on the receiving end of a bunch of stuff. Where does academia fall into all this? Like, you could be doing DARE work inside, I don't know, MIT, Stanford, etc. Like, where's academia's role in all this?
0: I am so disappointed with academia.
1: Oh, tell me more.
0: Absolutely. And that's one of the biggest reasons that I created DARE. And I, I was adamant that it would be outside of the academic system. First of all, the schools you mentioned, Stanford, um for instance stanford is basically big tech there is no difference between stanford and big tech and that ethos of big tech comes from stanford all of these people were educated there i went to school with them stanford gave rise to silicon valley i mean and and you look at hennessy he's a you know board chair at google and president at stanford all the different professors it's like So that's one thing. It's it's no different from big tech. And the education, the ethos, the attitudes that you see in Silicon Valley come from there. MIT, same thing. Uh, But also let's look at MIT being like basically the second largest military contractor in the U.S. So you would expect academia to be like a third space, kind of pushing back on whatever government is doing, pushing back on whatever big tech is doing. But it's really not. It's like a merger, I would say, of like military-industrial complex, the big tech and the military. So, so it's really, um, it's really disheartening uh, because you really don't get, the, don't get to see the kind of work that you expect from academia, and the incentive structures in academia are also not ones that would allow me to do the kind of work that I want to do. Mm. Right. So, for example, there's the whole publish and perish, or perish, you know. Um, you, I mean, publish, and perish, too, and, publish and perish too, publish or perish kind of attitude where you are incentivized, to just like run, run, run. And like, you know, publish, 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 even though that might not be what the best thing to do is for whatever community that you're working with. Right. The other thing is that, let's say I'm a computer vision researcher, you know, I can't say, you know, abolish computer vision. Maybe that's the right thing to do. I can't. I have to get tenure. Uh, The the computer vision people have to like me. I can't be critical. So I have to figure out which box to fit in and I can't be flexible. And so that's the other thing. But academia is also so exploitative. It's one of the most exploitative places. That we know of, honestly. And so there are very few academics that I have seen really pushing back. And one of the best works that I've seen so far is this group in University of Chicago that that created Glaze, which is a tool for artists. Artists can run Glaze on their artwork before they put it up online. So it it creates these um, changes on the artwork that is supposed to be imperceptible, So, but like that means that these companies can't do style mimicry on your images. Oh, interesting. So, that is, they can't, like, say, produce an image in the style of this artist, right? And I love that because this was literally, I mean, can you imagine out of the myriads of academics, this is the only group I've seen that wrote a paper that took a stand and said, this is actually wrong. You're actually explaining artists. There was no equivocating, and they created a tool. And they went to their town halls, and they did. They had all sorts of partnerships, and they created a tool for them. What, like, why don't we have more of that? You don't yeah. know, no. What we have is Stanford human centered uh, AI or whatever, having all of these partnerships with Anthropic, with OpenAI, with Google. Right? They invite them into their conferences to talk about how AGI is going to solve the world. Like, this is this is really not what I'm looking for when I'm looking at an academic institution.
1: No, I mean hear you loud and clear, but then I have to ask, like, who then is going to educate engineers coming up and start building these systems? I mean, like, let's talk about bias for a second. So, like, we can educate engineers all day long about the bias in systems, but, like, you were even pointing out earlier that, like, that might obscure an underlying question of just, like, should we be building the system at all? If it's not academia, who is going to teach that generation coming up?
0: I think academia should, but it's like the problem is that they're not right now. So the way in which engineers are educated, I think, is all wrong. I, I'm, I've i been trying to unlearn so many of the things that I learned, right? Like there's a concept of the view from nowhere, which is, you know, that we learn about science as if it's from no one's point of view, which is not. It's like from the point of view of Western white men, basically, right? That we've learned. And I think that, that that it needs to change. And what's really interesting is that when I go to these schools, the undergrads are so with it. Like, I, they're so inspiring to me. I mean, they want to have a different way of learning. Huh. I think the students are demanding something different, but they're not necessarily getting it. There's some classes. I think there's some great classes and some professors are are trying. But, you know, you have to look at the institutions as a whole. And especially if we're taking money away from our public institutions. Like, I I went to San Jose State a while ago in the heart of Silicon Valley, teaching mostly first-generation immigrants and first-generation college students, etc., etc., they can barely get any money and they're a public school they ba- barely have any money hmm. from the state how do we expect something different when we're not like incentivizing something different
1: okay so then let's maybe talk about timelines for change. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> like, I'm looking for some optimism on, like, how do we get ourselves out of this in some yeah. way? So, like, we have to figure out how to get the engineers. We have to fix academia. Government needs to regulate itself. What about everyday people? Like, how do we educate everyday people mm-hmm. on these issues so they can push back in this system that they exist in?
0: You know, I think that journalists have a big role to play. I think that, you know, Hollywood people, have a big role to play. You know, I mean, the writers are a strike, yes. But like the movie people, they really haven't been helping us. Like (laughs) I was saying, you know, what people know about AI is from Terminator and other kind (laughs) of movies. And so they're not thinking about corporations or the military or this or that centralization of power. And they're thinking of AI. So I think that... Pop culture has a a role to play. Journalists, some journalists have been doing a great job, um, others not so much. And so I think that that's kind of how people can get educated, right? And I think that public scholarship has a role to play. Like a lot of scholars can kind of have more interactions with the public in different places. I mean, that's what I try to do. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you're looking for some optimism, it's good to know that People are the ones in control of a lot of things. And so when people say no, historically, there has been times when people said no and things happened differently. So I think that it's important to let people know that the current trajectory is not inevitable. We didn't have to go here. It, it, we got here because of who has power, who has money, who is at the decision-making table, right? And so if we do things differently, different people, you know, get money, different people have power. I mean, we, we can have a different trajectory. And I also think that small actions make a big difference, right? Things spread. You don't have to have one big action that changes the whole world or whatever. Mm. When people do something locally, somebody else sees how successful that was and then they kind of adopt it or they do something similar that works for their context. For example, I, I learned about Te Media in New Zealand and their work with language revitalization and using language tech and I was like super inspired by it and I, you know, started um, kind of thinking about similar things, right? And so, they weren't trying to like do one thing for everybody in the world. They were just doing Doing this thing for themselves. And so I think it's really important to remember that. That wherever you are, if you're a student, whatever you do in that school, whether it is demanding for a new class, whether it's like the Cornell students saying that Cornell shouldn't work with Starbucks anymore, mm. that makes a huge difference, right? And so I think it's it's good for people to remember that.
1: How do we break out of the inevitability mold? So like I mean, like you even said it before that like there's a fundamental question of like, should we even be building these things? Maybe the cat's out of the bag. Tech companies wanted to sound like it's inevitable. Like, how do we sort of break out of that mold?
0: I think you know I've been learning a lot from scholars outside of computer science, outside of engineering, on that thinking. Um, so you know, Ruha Benjamin has this uh, book, "Viral Justice," all about imagination and how how imagination is so important. Sophia Noble, who wrote "Algorithms of Oppression," talks about how you know you shouldn't think about things being inevitable. Chris. Gilliard had this quote that I really like, which was, you know, when we found out that asbestos was bad, we were just like, let's ban it. You know, we weren't like, well, it's everywhere. What are the pros and, you know? And he was like, but when people talk about things like face recognition, they're like, oh, you can't ban math. So that's why I think, you know, (laughs) let's, I guess this is a completely different, not exactly a different topic, but like, you know, the humanities, like this type of scholarship for me is where I've been learning about having a different way of thinking and getting out of this inevitability mindset.
1: Does everyone need to be a technologist then? Is that just what we need to do?
0: Absolutely not. <laughs> but I think, I think what we need to do is respect other disciplines. And I think actually what's important is that the technologists should not be running the world. And so I think that we need to have other disciplines, people with other kinds of thinking have power. And right now, I think technocrats have too much power. And so, you know, they're not, they're definitely not well educated in these kinds of issues. And engineers have too much power. And so people in other disciplines don't.
1: So maybe it's not that everyone needs to be a technologist, but it sounds like, but correct me, like everyone needs to be technically literate at least. Like they need to understand. I,
0: I'm not even saying that. Oh, okay. I'm saying that everyone needs to be literate in actually more literate in other ways of thinking. That, like, for instance, like, actually, Ruha Benjamin brought up um, this point where we have so many coding boot camps, but have we ever thought about like sociology? I'm not saying boot camp, yeah, yeah. but I'm just saying yeah, like, yeah. we don't think that people need to know those things, but we're thinking about how everybody needs to code. But I think that we are underestimating the importance of the humanities and other ways of thinking. There is a book that is on my list right now, which is called The Birth of Computer Vision. I never, ever learned about this as a person who got her PhD in computer vision, right? The birth of computer vision, what were the priorities of the people building it? Where did the funding come from? It's military ties, et cetera, et cetera. And this book was not written by someone in computer vision. It was written by someone in creative writing, right? And I think this is the kind of stuff we're missing. This is the perspective we're missing. Not the technologists, but the people analyzing technology from a different mindset.
1: I so appreciate that framing and it really resonates with me. But I want to ask, and maybe this will be my last question, On the D.A.R.E. website, it says that one facet of your work is to de-center dominant narratives about technology and to imagine different possible futures. You got to give me some examples of what these alternative possible futures are.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, we are trying to have a, a series that comes out called um, Possible Futures, and we want to have, like, these short speculative pieces to think about what those possible futures are. So, for example, um, we wrote one piece called "The Internet for Our Elders. And so, like, what would it have looked like if the, quote-unquote, you know, I don't know, quintessential internet user was my grandma, yeah. you know, my grandma. Lived in Eritrea, and Eritrea is actually a country with one of the lowest internet penetration rates, if not the lowest. The government can shut down the internet whenever they want. You know, she didn't speak English, she didn't read or write in any language. And so, what would it have looked like to center her needs and for her to be able to use the internet and for it to give her joy? Uh, Another thing I'm thinking about is what if we thought of everybody being able to use any digital tool they want with whatever language? They want, whether speaking or writing, you know, what if we thought about coexistence more? What if we thought about, you know, everybody being able to communicate as much as they want in their language, right? So, I mean, these are just like different examples. So, for me, then it's kind of different groups of people, you know, what if people, when you have um, a model, what if it's the people who, whose data? you get from who primarily benefit or make money from that product you know that's a a different future so i think there are many different possible futures if we think of the current state of technology as not a given as something where we don't have to stay here
1: i am so looking forward to seeing this like i think like (laughs) this this alone is just making my wheels turn and i'm smiling like i'm so looking forward to seeing this Timmy, thank you so much for spending some time with me. Like This has been such a fun conversation, so thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. We covered a lot of ground.
1: Our email address is optimistic at emersoncollective.com. Follow us on social media at Emerson Collective. I'm Rafi Krikorian, Thanks so much for listening, and see you next time on Technically Optimistic.